Uh, I don't know about you, but my calendar gets fuller and fuller during this season. It looks like a Jackson Pollock painting of different colors. There are calendars within calendars, within calendars, within shared calendars. Uh, we have calendars for family, work, and kids. And so our calendar is full. Martin Luther, hundreds of year, years ago, he wrote, there are only two days on my calendar, this day and that day. So there are only two days on my calendar, this day and that day. And by this day, he means for us to be mindful of today, the ever-important present. Scripture says, look carefully how you walk today. Make the best use of your time today. Pray for daily bread, not for weekly bread, not for tomorrow's bread. We pray for daily bread. Exhort one another every day. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't live in a shameful past. Love God, love others today. It's all about today. This day was on his calendar and that day was on his calendar. By that day, Luther is referring to the Lord's return. One pastor notes, Scripture describes that day as a day of judgment and salvation, retribution and reward, calamity and blessing, wrath for some and salvation for others. You best bet there will be a day where Jesus Christ comes back. And when he does, I know this is a somber fact. It's, it's, nothing that I, it's not something that I preach with, with glee, but but on that day, there will be a great separating. A wheat and chaff, sheep and goat. There'll be salvation for some and, and judgment for others. And the clock, it moves ever closer towards that day. It's, it's not an if. It's a question of when. And I believe, and here's my thesis for today. I believe that day, when rightly understood, and reflected upon will influence everything about this day, about our today. God, through the prophet Malachi, he talks about that day. He talks about that day with the encouragement of it should change how you live today. Turn to Malachi chapter 2. Again, we have our Bibles back there. We are a Bible church. Uh, we are not a church who... Uh, it, it, it's not, you know, Creekside Larry Stott's church. It's uh, Creekside Bible Church. And so we're going to preach from the gospel. Uh, we're going to preach from God's word. And God, through the prophet Malachi, like I said, he talks about that day. And we're going to unpack that. But let's bring you up to speed. And if this is your first Sunday here, we just want to welcome you to Central Bible Church, man. We're glad you, you chose to worship with us today. Uh, but I'll encourage you to have that Bible open to, to Malachi 2 and, and to bring you up to speed. God's children have been complaining a lot lately. They've been complaining about their situation. They were once subjugated and enslaved by a number of different foreign powers. But God has redeemed them and now they have returned to the promised land, the temple, their, their center of worship, the means through which they, they connect with God and can be reconciled to God, has been rebuilt. Jerusalem has been rebuilt. So things are looking up in a sense, but they are still poor and weak, and they're really wondering why. 
They aren't experiencing prosperity, international prominence. And other seemingly wicked people are. They are experiencing those things. So they're like, what is the deal, God? Like, what's the deal? So look at verse 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. You've wearied the Lord. Now, God doesn't get physically tired. It's not like God is like, I just can't today deal with you guys. But we get a a figurative sense of, of, of what is being said. You have aggravated God continually with your words. His enduring patience is running out. God is annoyed with what you are saying. And here is their response. Look at 217, the rest of it. But you say, how have we wearied him? They're like, what are you talking about? How have we tested your patience? I mean, what have we really done? Which is somewhat crazy if you've been here for the past few weeks. Because they've done quite a lot in their their time. God has already called out their hollow worship, their idolatry, their low view of marriage, their failure to love one another well. But he doesn't go back and address those issues again. He moves forward and presses in on something new. Here's how you wearied me. Me. This is what's going on. So let's start over in 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? And God says this, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. This is what Israel was saying. They were saying, everyone who does good is evil in the sight of the Lord. And he, and he being God, he delights in evil people. They were also saying things like, where is this God of justice? So they were looking at their situation. They were looking at what was happening uh, around them. And they felt like God is blessing the bad people and we, the good people, are getting the shaft. And it's a question we, we some would all ask at some point. I mean, how come some sinners, how come some bad people receive blessings while we, the, the good people, God's people, seem to be cursed and persecuted? and hurt, and downtrodden. It's an honest question that God's people ask all throughout Scripture. But it's a really interesting question for Israel to ask it at this time in their existence. It's, it wearies God for Israel to make these statements at this time. And here's why it wearies God. Number one, is what they're saying true? Does God delight in wicked and evil people? Like, is he happy when he sees people turn from him? No, he doesn't. So they're speaking against the very nature of the God they worship, correct? Second, can they really say, man, has God not been good to us? I mean, that's what they're implying in this. You know, God's been good to the evil people and to the bad people, but us us good people, he's, he's not treated fairly. I mean, can they really say that? I remember when I was young, young, I, I was... Probably in first or second grade, my parents took me to Disneyland. And I hear this story probably once a year from my parents. It's kind of one of those stories where it's like, ah, bringing this thing up again. But we were in the middle of Disneyland. And I think it was because I wanted a Donald Duck hat. I wanted a hat that looked like Donald Duck. And I really wanted that. And my parents looked at us and they said, no, my parents didn't give us everything we wanted. And I remember looking at my parents. And and this is what they always tell me I said is, is, 
Mom, Dad, you never do anything fun. You never do anything fun for us. You never let us have anything. We're sitting in the middle of Disneyland. As I'm saying, you ever had your kid do something like that? You're so unfair. I mean, can they really say that about God? God has been faithful to them time and time and time again. He's delivered them from Egyptian slavery. He's given them a law, a sacrificial system that has allowed him, a holy God, to dwell with them. He's led them through judges, through the reign of kings, exile, and now restoration. He has disciplined them at times, but yes, he has always been fair with them. He has always been merciful with them and remained faithful to them. So if you're questioning God's goodness, reflect on the ways that he has been good to you and even treated you with favor and grace. Sometimes when we question God's justice, we forget that he's been very gracious to us and merciful. They're also implying that they have been good people not getting their just reward. They're complaining that God has not been faithful to them, but can they say the same thing about themselves in relationship to God? Where is this God of justice? You know, they're claiming that God has been unjust, at best negligent for not dealing with those wicked people over there. But here's the irony. They should have been looking in the mirror, (laughs) repenting of their own sin, and thanking God that his timetable for justice is different than ours. We should all thank God that his timetable for justice is different than ours. So God looks at Israel and he says, you're asking for the God of justice to come. You're going, where's this God of justice? We want this God of justice. Well, God says, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. Look at chapter three, very next verse. Look at one. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Underline that, prepare the way. And the Lord, when you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? So two people are coming. You want the God of justice? Okay. Two people are coming. One will prepare the way. The New Testament identifies this person as who? John the Baptist, the dude out in the wilderness eating bugs, wearing animal skin, the guy with the crazy hair, baptizing people. He's preparing a way for Jesus, this other messenger, this messenger of the covenant. He will come. We all know him as Christ. Now, before we move on, I need to confess that this is not a Christmas message. This is not a Christmas message. This is not talking about Jesus's arrival, his first coming. We should not break out the Christmas tree and sing, you know, Jesus is coming to town. Uh, Because, yes, Jesus is coming to town, but this is his second coming. And scripture describes it as the day of the Lord. Look at verse two again. But who can endure the day of his coming? Underline that. 
the day of his coming. This language of the day of his coming is another expression for that day, the day of the Lord, for judgment day. One day, the God of justice will break into human history and take his rightful place on the throne, and that day will be like any other day in human history. So you best listen up. Essentially what God's saying to Israel. If you want to face that day well. And again, I don't love preaching this, but if, you, if you're at a church that preaches God's word holistically, you've got to preach things that are hard. And there are two ways that this day can go for people. And this is what God talks about. Look at 3, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah in Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. So for some, God will come like a refining fire, like fuller's soap. I grew up in a church that sang a song, Refiner's Fire, my heart's one desire. Have you ever heard that song before? Is to be. Thank you, Luke, <laughs> for not leaving me out. I think about that every time I hear this refiner's fire. Now, most of us, that was your, yeah, that was because you, I messed it up. <laughs> Uh, this will make sense. You're, you're refined by having children sometimes. Uh, fire is used at times. Now, now, some of us, we don't work in steel factories and all that stuff. We don't, most of us don't mine for gold anymore. But, but fire is, is used to, to develop and, and refine precious metals, precious materials. Get gold. You know, gold is not found naturally in, in the wild in just giant pure gold chunks. It's usually ribbons in mountains that they kind of discover and they pull out all this rock and then they heat it up. They heat all this rock and anything that's not gold gets brought to the surface. And then that gets skimmed off. So what you're left with is a pure gold, which is hopefully pure gold. So God is going to come like a refiner's fire. He's going to come and, and clean and get rid of our impurities. He talks about like, like soap. Now, unless you're in middle school, you know what soap does. Like, you, you know, it, it removes dirt and bacteria. Gets, it gets rid of that smell. We, we, we know what soap does. So God is coming with a refining fire, and some will be purified on that day, and he will start with the priest. They were a mess. The whole sacrificial system was a mess. Their hearts were not in it. They were bringing up unacceptable sacrifices. So God will purify them of their sin, of their impurities for a purpose. You know, in scripture, refining is always for a purpose. And as a purified priest, they're going to bring offerings and sacrifices that are now acceptable. They're going to go from being apathetic where there's disdain and frustration. They're going to go to authenticity and passion and integrity for the Lord. Their offerings are going to please them. And this God who they claim is very distant, who's not there, is going to draw near to them. 
The God of justice is coming. And some will be refined when that happens. Now, what the heck does that mean for us? Well, in the New Testament, this theme of refining is picked up again. In one sense, we are forgiven and clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are legally justified. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees righteousness because of the work of Jesus. But in another sense, sin is still present in our lives, just, just by a show of hands. Who would claim to be free from sin in here? I was worried a hand was going to go up, and I was going to have to have a hard theological conversation, maybe disappoint you a little bit. But we all still deal with it. We all still wrestle with sin and, and the flesh and and bad habits, and, and sinful practices, and sinful tendencies. And it's because sin is something we still wrestle with, God refines us day by day. He purifies us day by day to make us more like Jesus. And it's a process that happens when we first put our faith and trust in Jesus, and it happens every day up until that day when that process will be completed in full. Do you know how God accomplishes that process? Through pain and suffering. God accomplishes that process of refining, making us more like Jesus through trials, through tribulations, and through suffering. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 and 11 say, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. For, the, for in the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. He says this in 1 Peter, In this you rejoice that now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the genuine, the, the, the tested genuine, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it, test, it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The fiery trials you experience in this life, every moment of pain, suffering, every broken relationship, unfulfilled expectation, unemployment, wayward children, persecution, God is capable of using all of that to remove the impurities, the sin in your life so that you will become more like Jesus to the glory of God. Here's another way to say this. Evil is never wasted on you. Suffering is never in vain when we cling to the Lord because he can use that to grow our faith to grow our trust in him. Is it pleasant? No, it's not. 
Is it fun? No. Is it intense at times? Yes. But if you're in a season of suffering and pain right now, I know it's hard to hear this. It can be beneficial for you. Now, when you're in the middle of it, it's really hard to grasp that. And it's really annoying when people tell you it. But when you're on the back end of it, most of us can see how God has worked through our pain. How God has worked through our loneliness. How God has worked through broken relationships. Would we want to go through it again? Absolutely not. Are we glad that God has developed faith and maturity and growth in us? Yeah. I'm glad that evil wasn't wasted. Despite what some private jet-owning, $3,000 suit-wearing pastors will tell you, God's goal is not to make you happy. This is great Christmas sermon. Very, very light. God's goal is not to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. It's to conform us to the image of his son that happens through refining today and a final purging on that day. Every believer will experience a testing through fire before we receive a heavenly reward. And anything that passes on into heaven will pass through fire for a reason, which we'll talk about here in a second. But look at 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. That day, it will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. On that day, when we face God, there will be a refining fire for some and a consuming fire for others. There will be a refining fire for some and a consuming fire for others. Look at verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be swift. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. So God will come and purify some sinners. We should talk about for a reason why. And he will judge others talks about all these types of, of sinners, sorcerers, who are practitioners of, of black magic, witchcraft, and the occult. So Gandalf and Dumbledore ain't getting into heaven. <laughs> it's a terrible joke. But look at how most of the sins here deal with how we socially love and bless other people. Look at, look, look, look at these sins. It's how we fight for the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. That's what the sojourner is person who has no home. Some Christians have railed against what is called the social justice gospel. And if social justice is all we have, yes, we're, we're lacking in a sense. But it's hard because the, the Old and New Testament, they encourage us to look out for the helpless and the weak. We, we can preach the gospel when we do that. But we're also to protect people who aren't protected. We're also to care for people who don't have a home. We're also to love people who, who are lost. 
And when God's people don't do those things, they will be judged as lacking. There will be a consuming fire on that day of judgment, and some people will be removed from God's presence forever. The God of justice is coming. There will be a refining fire for some and a consuming fire for others. So this begs the question, well, I personally would like to be refined and not consumed. You know, I look at, I look at my loved ones. I'd rather see them refined, even though it can be unpleasant, than, than consumed. So how, how do I, you know, if sheeps go here and, and goats go here and wheat goes here and chaff goes here, you know, how do I go through door A instead of door B? And Paul tells us in verse 5. Look at the end of verse 5. Against those who thrust aside the, the sojourner, the immigrant, and do not fear me. Underline, do not fear me. Salvation begins with a fear of God. Not a, you know, Babadook, the Terminator's coming sort of fear. Uh, I'm running. I'm scared. It is a awe. It's a reverence, it's a respect, it's a submission that really starts with faith. Israel, people in Israel were saved by faith through what God had revealed to them at that time. They had faith in God and a faith that was demonstrated in, in a certain type of worship. If worship would look this way, there'd be no idolatry. You'd, you'd focus your heart on God and, and through certain acts of obedience that he talks about here, loving other people, caring for people, serving people. But it's, it's a faith, it's, it's the root in who God is, and that faith is living and active and authentic, and, and there'll be some fruit. There'll be some fruit. In the New Testament, Paul told us just a, a few seconds ago, we're saved when our foundation is built on what? Jesus Christ. His work on the cross for us. He has died so that we could be saved from sin. He lived a perfect life so that he could take our place. His death is of infinite value so that we could be forgiven. And he rose again, conquering sin and death so that we put our faith in him. We can have eternal life. Building our life on the foundation of Christ. What separates the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chafe? Authentic faith in Jesus. I'm not getting in because of my good looks or my uh, you know, personality. It's through Christ alone. And when that faith in God is real, when that fear of God is real, it too will result in a life of obedience and faithfulness. Not perfection. And raise your hand if any of you claim to be perfected today. Not perfection, but but fruitfulness. There'll be some fruit. And here's kind of how it all plays out. When we enter into a relationship with him, our process of growth and maturing begins. We will learn to become more and more like Jesus every day. It may not feel like that, but it's generally in people's lives, you know, some, you know, there's dips, but it'll, there'll, there'll be an upward trajectory. You know, we had a, we had a graph, kind of, you know, Christ-likeness, time, you know, it, we kind of drop sometimes because we struggle and we, we hurt, but then we kind of grow and mature. And, and the older you get, the, the more sinful you realize you actually are and how, how much more you need to grow and you get a greater sense of God's holiness. But we're going to grow and mature daily. We're going to become more and more like Jesus. We're going to learn to serve 
and, and love and humble ourselves daily. And that work on judgment day will serve as evidence that Jesus is real to us and we will be saved if we fail to fear the Lord. We may be judged through fire to be lacking, showing that we never truly built our lives on the foundation of Christ in the first place. The God of justice is coming. Better watch out. Better not cry. The God of justice is coming. That doesn't rhyme, but it's true. He's coming. Any day. Any day now. He's, it's, it's, it's imminent. Now, if I start saying I know the day, you should stop coming to church altogether. I don't know when it's going to happen. But it's coming. What are you going to be doing when, when it happens? <laughs> I mean, how are you going to be living your life when that, when that day actually happens? The day will be a day of judgment and salvation, retribution and calamity and blessing, wrath for some, salvation for others. Some will be refined. Some will be confused. I said at the beginning, that day when rightly understood, when reflected upon, will influence everything about this day. One pastor talked about the future often pours into the present. The future often pours into the present. This is not a foreign concept to us because future days often influence our present days. The future paycheck, it encourages you to do what? To show up to work and be faithful and to do what you're called to do. The future result of a fit body, it inspires you to go to the gym today. Quinn, one day you will finish your doctorate. You dream about that day, don't you? <laughs> Dreaming about that day. But it affects what you do today. I got stuff to do. I got stuff to get done. Your future graduation ceremony motivates you to get your homework done. And today, the, the reality is, is the future is stamped on today more often than we might realize. So how much should the future day of judgment and salvation drive our today? The future day of refining should help us to faithfully persevere through, through suffering and, and calamity today. Guys, one day it will be over. One day it'll be over. And your life will seem like, like a flash. All the pain you experience will be gone. I mean, I, I can't wait for that day, but it also helps me to understand God's not wasting it on my today. And he will help me. He'll be faithful to me and refine me Today, it should move us to look at that future day of judgment and, and look at our fruit and test our fruit to determine its root cause, Christ living in us. And it should move us to seek justice, serve the less fortunate, use our resources for his purposes, and li live every area of our lives in a way that honors him and glorifies him. It, it, you know, it should change the way you, you change diapers. It should change the way you, you speak to your spouse. It should change the way you parent your kids. It should change the way you interact with your neighbors. That day should change and affect how you view your mission today. I want to end by just saying this. A consuming fire. This is, this is, this is hard. We don't talk about this every single week, but a consuming fire awaits people you love people you care for, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members. 
children, parents, boss. That day of consuming fire is, is coming. Man, if that doesn't move you to some sense of urgency and purpose in your life, I, I, don't, I don't know what will. When we were planting this church two years ago, we were really debating on whether we should. The pandemic was really starting to uh, take off. We didn't, we, we, you know, we'll give it three months. It'll be over then. Uh, we, we, I remember sitting down with a person and they were like, I think we should wait. I think we should wait until it's over. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad we didn't do that. But, you know, we should wait. We should wait till January. It'll be over in four months. Then we can really start to plant the church. And I just remember thinking like, you know, there, there are people in this neighborhood, in this area, who need Jesus. If you weren't here at 10 a.m., we prayed for 10 or 12 different people who have yet to meet Christ that we want to see meet Christ. Guys, I don't want to wait for tomorrow. I don't want to wait for tomorrow to be on mission. And some of you have been on mission with us for, for two years now. And man, it really has felt like a year. You know, that first year was in the old stinky church, uh, great church. It wasn't stinky. It was just different. And uh, it was, uh, but you know, it, it was a learning year and, and we were kind of hidden away and it was, we were meeting at night and it was dark and weird. And, uh, and our year really started here and God has been blessing us and God has been doing good things. But, but I know you're tired. I know you're tired some, some Sundays. We got people here two hours before service starts setting up stuff. Do not grow weary. What we're doing is not in vain. We are a church that exists to make disciples and see people saved. And that happens when we go to work today. It happens when we don't waste our today, when we live on mission today. Martin Luther was right in having only two days on his calendar, that day and this day. Let's pray.